Hi, Katie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Dominic Kramer. It's a bright new year and you're back from the mountains finally. I am. I I heard the theme tune calling from across the Dolomites and decided it was time to come down (laughs) to the flatness of the Netherlands and start making this podcast again. Hooray. Have you had a nice break? I did have a nice holiday, thank you. I've been uh, doing all the normal things, watching loads of TV, eating stuff, and I'm now ready, I think, for a new year of making some more great podcasts with you about this weird and wonderful continent of ours. Uh, The usual weekly show will be back next week, but we're actually kicking off this year with a special episode. It's the latest in our award-winning miniseries, This Is What A Generation Sounds Like. If you haven't heard one of these episodes before, please do go back and listen because they are some of my all-time favourite episodes. But basically, the idea behind this series is to hand over the microphone to a young person somewhere in Europe and hear about their own lives in their own words. Episode by episode, we are slowly building a kind of audio patchwork of lives of the under 35s in this incredibly diverse continent of ours. This latest episode was made by our producer Wojciech and we sent him to Cyprus to meet a young woman called Andrea Solomonides. She grew up mostly in Limassol, which is on the south coast of Cyprus. It's a a really bustling port city. It's got like skyscrapers bumping up against these beautiful turquoise waters. And for Europeans from cold places like you and me, Dominic, Limassol is a holiday destination. But for Andrea, it's home. Wojciech again chose a great destination to go and make an episode. I need to work a bit harder on this. He's very good at that, yeah. But Katie, you were actually with Wojciech on a video call when you both met Andrea for the first time. Mm -hmm. What made you think she should be part of this series? Uh, I mean, I really wanted this series to include a story about someone who does like 15 different jobs. Like me. (laughs) Like you and like me. And I do think that's a big part of our generation's story, like not having this super traditional career path. Uh, And as you'll hear, Andrea is someone who wears a lot of different hats. Uh, But I also really liked the way that she talked about the place of Cyprus within Europe and what it's like to live in a country that is part of the EU, but feels really, really far away from the rest of the Union. Like on a map, you might think of Cyprus as geographically being really almost part of the Middle East. It's in the Mediterranean, but it's really pretty close to Lebanon and Syria. If you're not familiar with Cyprus's history, it's complicated. It's an island that has changed hands for centuries. It was a British colony for decades up until 1960. And the years after that were marked by constant strife between the two main communities, the Greek Cypriots who speak Greek and the Turkish Cypriots who speak Turkish. Things really came to a head in 1974, when first of all, Greek generals attempted a coup d'etat, and then five days later, the Turkish army invaded. They captured the north part of the island and Cyprus got split into two. There was a Greek Cypriot part and a Turkish Cypriot part. And in the midst of all of this, more than 200,000 people got forced to leave their homes because they had found themselves on the wrong side suddenly. Greek Cypriots forced to leave the north, Turkish Cypriots forced to leave the south. All of these people had to pack up in a hurry. And in many cases, they never went back. Since then, Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots have lived really very separately, kept apart by this buffer zone, an area patrolled by UN peacekeeping forces that stretches 180 kilometres across the island. And that makes Cyprus a strange place to grow up. 
It's a place where this tumultuous history can feel really present, even though the conflict has been kind of frozen for decades now. The story that you're about to hear is a snapshot of just one young person's life in Cyprus. And you might well hear a different perspective if you speak to someone else about history and politics on the island. But we wanted to include it because I think it represents something quite typical of our generation, actually, in another way, aside from the fact that Andrea is someone who seems to have about 25 jobs. It's a story about having a really strong opinion about something when you're 18, being sure that you're right, and then realising as you start finding out a little bit more about the world, eh, actually, maybe things are a bit more complicated than I thought. Anyway, this is Andrea's story, so we will let her tell you the rest. This episode is a co-production with Are We Europe, made in cooperation with the Allianz Foundation. It was produced by Wojciech Oleksiak and Andrea Solomonides. Everything starts and finishes with the Cypriot issue. You have a country that is barely 62 years old, out of which the 48 has this issue. My name is Andrea Solomonidis. I was born in Athens, raised in Limassol. I would say I'm a musician at heart (laughs) and by trade also. Uh, I found a musician that found politics and eventually found business and startups and trying to kind of combine the best of all three to, you know, be useful and helpful for my country. (laughs) I ran Giraffes in the Kitchen, strategy design, crisis management, campaigning for the frontrunner of the presidential elections campaign in Cyprus, Nikos Christodoulides. I run the operations for Black Lemon, which is a production company. Another hat is my involvement with the startup community. So it's like every day, like a hundred things going on at the same time. (sighs) Sometimes I don't know why I'm I'm putting everything on my plate. Yeah. (laughs) What Cyprus means to me is a small rock that contains pretty much all the people that I love in my life. Family, friends, and it's the love for these people that eventually spills over as the love of the space and the place. My two grandparents are both from a village called Panozodia, and it's a village in the occupied district of Nicosia. Those two lovely people, (laughs) they got together and then they moved to Greece, to Athens more specifically, and that's where they had my father. They came back to Cyprus, to their village, and they had another two kids. And up till the time that the war happened, they were happily living in their village, doing their stuff. War happened in 74. Thursday morning, a week ago, tanks of the Turkish army on the outskirts of Famagusta are about to complete their victory in Cyprus. The Geneva peace talks have collapsed. 
my grandparents had run away to the mountains and initially they thought it was going to be for, you know, a couple of days, couple of days turned into months. And then they bounced around between places. And after a while, which was some years, actually, they headed as close to home as they could, which was the capital, Nicosia. And the city by then had been split by a wall with checkpoints and barbed wire. And it's a border that runs right through the middle of the city and it splits the entire city and the island. And it's still there today, dividing Cyprus in two. They never went back home. They never did. And my grandpa died in 2020 right in the midst of COVID at the age of 89. He survived by his wife, that she's very much alive and well, (laughs) at 92 right now. The war changed a whole generation, such a small place, and you had 200,000 people displaced and 37% of your territory taken. You also had your economy destroyed. The Greek Cypriot town of Famagusta used to be one of the most popular resorts in the Mediterranean. Now it's a ghost town. When the Turkish army attacked from the north, everybody left the place. Nothing has been touched. It's a total ghost town. The only thing I have in mind is that I had a father that, you know, by the time he was 18, he lost everything. And then it's us, our generation that's supposed to be the first generation that wouldn't experience a war. Most of the time we feel that we carry the trauma and at the same time we don't deserve whatever good stuff we're reaping from the hard work of our parents. Still, whenever you build whatever we have achieved, when we have elections, everything, it kind of circles back to who was right back then. And they don't get that all of them were fucking wrong. Sorry for the, for my French. So, because everybody was. It doesn't matter with who I stand on that. Families like mine, we still think of ourselves as refugees. And not just my father's generation who were displaced, but like as a kid, my family told me that I was a first generation refugee and that my kids would be second generation. So if my father was from Pano Zodia in Nicosia district, I vote for Nicosia district because I come from that village, even though I never lived in that village. So it's weird and unique in a way that I'm not sure that it ever contributes in healing from this. I'm certain that it doesn't. But the reason it happened was purely, I believe, to provide a sense of justice that we do not forget that generationally you lost a privilege of being in your own village or city and that we do not forget that and... With this label, you're entitled to assistance, help, compensation, and other things that the kids of refugees have compared to the non-refugees. 
So some refugees got their no-interest loans to help buy a new place. The poorer ones, they were given like a small house, maybe two-bedroom, one-bedroom. There were a lot of schemes. There were a lot of plans depending on age, different types of assistance. It becomes part of your identity because that's what you were told. And you would identify as a refugee. So you know, were a kid. I mean, they would ask, who here are like refugees? Because it's the way they would explain it to you is that if that wouldn't happen, you wouldn't be here probably. You would be in some... First of all, I wouldn't be here at all. I don't think my parents would ever need probably. Like my father used to say always that if I haven't met your mother, I would never come back to Cyprus because there was nothing there for me. I will be somewhere else. I wouldn't come back here because it was too painful to come back here because, you know, everybody wants to go back to their roots because his parents are there. It's the house you grew up. And once that is gone, it's not, it's not a home anymore. And was your grandfather somebody who would reflect, like circle back to his lost home a lot? Every day. Every day. He died in 2020, and since 2016, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's that progressed really rapidly. And I think that deep down, I was slightly happy about it, although it was painful. He, he, for, he forgot me first, and I was his favorite. So, <laughs> But I remember that I asked my grandma, did he forget about the invasion? And she said yes. And I was like, so I'm happy. Yeah, because maybe even for some days or a week, months, doesn't matter how long he forgot about it, it means that maybe the pain, you know, went away. Because it, in, for him, it never, never did. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Okay. Okay, let's do it. He was angry about it all his life. He wouldn't accept it. He never did. I think I would have told the story differently when I was a kid and then when I was 20 and now that I'm mid-30s. And I think it's depending on all the experiences and, and all the additional knowledge you gain. You know, as a kid, you would say, oh, my father is a refugee. We lost our home. And you would say, we lost our home as if you were there. Uh, by 20, you know, I would be very critical about how the Turks were. And now mid-30s, you know, by understanding foreign policy and everything, how the world works and all of that, I would say that everybody's at fault and the circumstances suck. When I was 18, I visited my best friend. She was studying in the UK at Warwick University. And up there, it was the first time I really interacted with Turkish Cypriots my own age because there were people who were studying law with my friend. So it might sound crazy to you that I had to travel like 3,000 kilometers to randomly interact with people from the other side of my island, but there it is. And it was shocking. It was the only time actually I had a like, pretty big fight with my best friend. Like, I mean, we're 
we're friends for 25 years. Back then we were already friends for, I don't know, 10 years. And we never really fought about anything, not even the childish stuff. And the first time she told me, you know, I'm gonna visit my classmate, my university classmate in, in Cairinha or, you know, in Northern Nicosia. I was like, I was, you know, like I, I felt so helpless. I felt, you know, that I was betrayed. I mean, I, I really did. And, and, and that's when the first time that she told me, hey, you know that they're refugees as well, just in the opposite direction. So don't, don't take it up with them. Take it up with the system that, you know, it's putting us in, in this situation where, you know, we are so like-minded, we like the same stuff. We grew up in the same island, but we are just divided as they are. So it was a very big life lesson. I'm, I'm trying to make it a point to myself to always remember that when I tend to get like really hardcore about either or topic. So between the invasion of 1974 up until 2003, the border was firmly closed. You had the Greek part, you had the Turkish part, you had the buffer zone, essentially just a winding strip of dusty land with a few trees and empty outhouses, and nobody was crossing. 2003 in April, Dehtaj opened the border and expected like people to, I don't know, kill each other. I don't know what he expected, but what the cameras got and you know, what people experience is the generation of my grandpa and even older, uh, you know, like meeting at the border and hugging and crying and saying, dude, I missed you. So a lot of people visited. My grandparents wanted to visit. Like they had a lovely farmhouse in the outskirts of the village with the trees and bunnies and chickens and tomato stuff where they were having their parties and their dinners with their friends and their family. And they had spent already 20 years sitting in an apartment in Ecosia waiting to see and go back to their place. So once the checkpoint had opened, the border had opened, of course they wanted to go back. And they did. But I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go see other people living in something that was rightfully ours. I cracked because my grandpa asked me. And he told me, it was summer 2003, so I was still not 18. He told me, there is a chance that I don't get to take you there in a free country. But right now at this moment, I have the chance to at least show you. So we all went. And uh, we drove there, we went uh, to their place. Um, Sharif it was the Turkish Cypriot lady that I was living in, but she was very friendly. And um, I remember she was saying, talking about her home in Paphos. And this was really interesting as an experience. I remember the fear that we felt that, you know, somebody maybe would attack us or 
that nobody would understand us. So, you know, we wouldn't be able to get something to eat. So we, we traveled with, you know, sandwiches and waters in our cars. And I remember that we cruised around a bit with the cars and uh, we left and uh, everybody was kind of relieved that we left. And um, I swear that I would never go again. I said, okay, okay, Grandpa, you made your point. I, I thank you very much, but I'm going to start my ground. I had grown up with this story of war, and to me, the Turkish Cypriot side of the island, like the occupied side of the island, was the invader. I just didn't want anything to do with them. But later, I had the chance to change my mind because me and my friends from the startup community and the entrepreneurship community, we were selected to take part in a United Nations development program. So we had an entrepreneurship project that brought young people from both sides of the checkpoint together. I saw them in a weekend to be so friendly and, you know, when they finished their teams hugging each other and, you know, promising that they will get together again when they are adults and they can cross on their own. So... I saw what all the haters and the no-sayers were saying that wouldn't happen, meaning people getting along. I saw it happen in a weekend, and that's what hurt me. And that's what actually made me softer about my very strict stance about Turkey. I realize it's about people. If you had given the opportunity to the people, they would collaborate, they would speak the same language, they would do stuff together. Nobody's here wishing that they're in the Maldives. They're here and they want to be here and they're next to a cold war zone, but it's still a war zone. And they keep being here and creating here because they love it. They don't want to go. Why would they want to go? The other side, I mean. And even the epiki, which is are the people that Turkey brought here to occupy the area, it's been 48 years. They belong here. Their kids and grandkids were born here. They, they know no other country. How can you get them out? Why would you get them out? They love it. They love the country. Do you feel comfortable on the other side? Um, when I used to do it more often, I, I did feel comfortable. I was always the most comfortable when I had my Turkey Cypriot friends. Um, it felt that if I failed to be able to interact with somebody in English, that they would help me. And remember that our phones don't work. So eventually from one point on, you kind of feel a bit helpless because your phone is not working. So you don't have internet to guide you to places. Nobody can reach you, so it's out of reach. I wouldn't do it on my own, for sure. But overall, I'm not afraid from the people or anything like that. Um, I never had, actually. So yesterday we had a little incident at the border. Would you mind telling us what happened? Yeah, not at all. Okay, so we were crossing and we were chatting, you know, just using the microphone. It was a very visible microphone, uh, to be fair. We were chatting, getting to the other checkpoint where we were stopped by the police to show a passport. But then again, they saw the microphone and they asked who, if we're journalists and what we're doing. I'm working for an independent media outlet. It's called The Europeans. Europeans? Mm -hmm. 
Do you have permission to scan here? It's he's not video recording. Mm -hmm. It's just Can I see audio. video. Please? There's no video. Can I see it? Sure. And we ended up having to give the microphone that one of the policemen considered it as something with a hidden camera. Yeah, but it says zoom in here, so it means there's a camera in here. So the guy basically, he insisted that we had a hidden camera. I think eventually he realized that it wasn't. And then he asked us to listen to what we were discussing. Actually, can we hear what you recorded? Yeah. Now? Now, yes, please. So we rewinded the tape and we gave it to him. I think we, we looked calm. Maybe we weren't that inside. <laughs> uh, so we heard ourselves back <laughs> discussing about the architecture of Nicosia. And um, we were more anxious that the, he might listen towards the end. He didn't. He got bored of probably my voice. <laughs> he wanted to correct me on the part that the North is not European territory and it's a different country, which is for me the first time that somebody from there was saying this and bluntly to my face. And that's why I told him, like, you know, my Turkey Cypriot friends don't feel that way. You know, they never th thought we're a different country. We have a different language. We are a different thing. We should be a different thing. But they want to be one thing. They want to be Europeans. That's why it was the first time that I felt it, like somebody said it to my face. In 2004, we had a referendum um, before we entered European Union, whether we would like to be reunited or not. The terms were not perfect, but it was the best that we had back then, probably. There was a lot of propaganda by the people that wanted to say no. So the propaganda would say, if the borders open, uh, we're going to lose our tourism to the north. If we reunite, we, the South, are going to have to give more taxes to rebuild the other side. 99% of the things they were saying was not, were not true. They were like bland lies. Back then, people didn't get it. They didn't get it. I supported yes, but most Greek Cypriots, they overwhelmingly voted against reunification. 75% of them. Turkish Cypriots did want to be reunited, so 65% of them voted yes. But as an island, the people had spoken. And we were never reunited. Like, deep, deep in me, I feel that the politicians here the past 48 years have failed us in so many ways and all the time that like my hopes are really low about solving, solving it in any meaningful manner. I mean, in a better way than it is right now, where, you know, the, the army over there gets to tell you, you know, that side, the south side is European, but don't get mistaken, this side is not. I mean, it's an island. <laughs> it's just one unit. Okay, so I don't know how we will ever solve this. I do know that, you know, the, the, the younger the kids collaborate and they get to do stuff together, they, they, they don't care about the politics. I know that I've seen it. I, I've trained kids in entrepreneurship that they became friends in a weekend. And I'm like, 
I know in my heart, I know that it will be tough at first, but you know, it will eventually um, be okay. Turkey is going to send more troops to northern Cyprus to defend Turkish Cypriots in response to the U.S. decision to lift its arms embargo on the Greek Cypriot administration. The Foreign Minister, Melvot Çavuşoğlu, says Ankara will never stop protecting its rights in the region. Over the past few months, we've been seeing news about Turkey wanting to send more troops to the occupied side of Cyprus. And for Greek Cypriots, these headlines are a constant reminder of threat, especially after the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. After February 2022, I'm not sure. I don't want to say yes. I don't want to say it's going to happen. But I am very aware that now it's a very, very vivid possibility. Also, nobody would really do anything about it. I mean, it feels like we're a very small country trapped along very big countries that they fight also with each other and they have different allegiances and different aspirations and that, God forbid, something happened. Who would come to support? Would that be Israel? Okay, but they have good relationships with Turkey as well. Why would they stand in their way? Greece is like the one-tenth of Turkey, and Egypt, it's Egypt. I mean, and it's like, okay, so now Erdogan might wake up one day and just take the rest of it. So this is where the European sentiment kind of comes off. You feel that they will stand with their papers in their nice building in Strasbourg and in Brussels, and they would say, we condemn this, and our thoughts and prayers are with the Cypriot people. <laughs> but then they wouldn't do anything about it. That's what people fear. Do you think that geography plays a role here? Of course it does. I mean, we are the most southeastern part of Europe. Our location is even lower than Gibraltar, so it's like there's no southern place in Europe than us. And there's no eastern because, you know, all the countries in our axis, like above us, it's European territory, but it's not European Union territory. So we are the southeastest part of Europe. And a lot of maps or a lot of historians, instead of placing us in Europe, sometimes they place us in Asia. The history of Cyprus has been marked with it being invaded, being conquered, being sold. And we were occupied and ruled by Venetians and Crusaders and Turks and English. But almost as soon as we had liberated ourselves and became an independent country, the war came. I think maybe that's why safety is such a big part of the psychology of this place. We don't sit around and say, okay, do you feel unsafe? We don't do that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we are, you know, we, we live relatively, you know, our generation has, you know, the everyday problems like housing, like trying to have some ownership, like a flat house. I mean, we do have the everyday stuff, but that doesn't really define us. What's the thing you like the most about Cyprus? 
I think I'm gonna say the food. You know, even the Greeks that, you know, everybody says, oh, Cyprus and Greece the same. It's not, even the Greeks are always like, oh, that halloumi, it's like a thing. Um, first, I'm gonna say the food, and then I'm gonna say the fact that for such a small place, you have such different geography, which is amazing. You are in Limassol, and you get a city that is by the beach, and in 20 minutes, you are in 500 meters above sea level, and in 30 minutes, you are on the top of the mountain. So let's say in April, there is a chance where you can go in the morning and ski, and then you can come at lunch and you can dip in the sea and you can swim. And then you visit the Pafus area, and then you have like Blue Lagoon and the waters that they're so deep, and you have the shipwrecks and you can do all your scubas and all of that. And then you can go all the way on the east side where Yanapa is, and then you have sandy, golden beaches, not even a stone. Like imagine, only yesterday we visited four out of the five districts. We were in Nicosia in the morning and we had lunch, and then in the afternoon we had tea in Larnaca, and then later on we had a speech in uh, Famagusta area, and then we drove all the way back to Limassol, and, and it was still time for dinner, just in a day. This episode was produced by Andrea Solomonidis and me, Wojciech Oleksia. I also did the scoring, sound design and mixing of the story. Our editors were Katz Laszlo, Katie Lee and Dominic Kramer. Thank you so much to our collaborators at RW Europe and the Alliance Foundation. And of course, many thanks to our Patreon supporters who are keeping this operation alive. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by the one and only Jim Barn. We would also like to give special thanks to Eleni Tiali and Hilmi Tekolu. Thank you so much for listening. Hear you next week. <laughs>